This is the sermon podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for a worship Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11.15 a.m. This is Lord of Life. There is a place for you here. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. Morning. The first reading is from Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people. It is you who have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for you evil for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. The second reading is from Colossians chapter 1. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the the Father, who has enabled you to share in the, the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things." whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel, which today is taken from the gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter. When they came to the place that's called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, 
for they don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging there kept deriding him and saying, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we're getting what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Please be seated. Christ, the King, sometimes called Reign of Christ Sunday, comes at the end of the church year. The very last Sunday before we circle back to begin again with Advent. And it marks the culmination, the fulfillment, the denouement, whatever you want to call it, the climax, where Jesus is revealed as ruler of heaven and earth and of all creation. But as Brett pointed out, we get strange readings to reflect that. Our readings seem to present us with a series of paradoxes to consider. For Jeremiah paints the picture of a king who will come and execute justice and righteousness in the land, but what we are given to look at is a man hanging on a cross who can execute neither justice nor righteousness but can only be executed. And we are given the idea of power to consider, the power of this king to set things right, and yet the image we are given to look at is a man whose Hands remain nailed steadfastly to the cross, unable seemingly to wield any sort of power. And finally, we get that wonderful brief little oxymoron, the good thief, who sees something different in Jesus. Um, we have a group that's been meeting for the last few Wednesdays um, to talk about preaching and to wrestle with some texts in preparation of presenting some sermons. And one of the questions that has come up repeatedly in that group is 
how could the disciples be so dense? And indeed, they seem to to misunderstand even what seems to be the most transparent of Jesus' teachings. He'll tell them something and then they instantly turn right around and seem to assume the opposite. Such that some scholars think, well, maybe they actually were dense. Maybe they were a constant source of frustration for Jesus because they were these kind of rustic yokels who were always chafing under the teachings of this more learned rabbi. Others think that the disciples are purposely presented as straw men, as dull stones for Jesus to sharpen his teachings against. But I think a more likely possibility is that the disciples were not dense, but were distracted and were blinded by what they expected, not what they saw and not what they heard. We all have that tendency to see what we expect to see. How many snipes are spotted during snipe hunts? And how many times have You've seen news reports of someone, you know, who attacks someone in, in the workplace or who absconds with the funds, and then when their coworker is asked, did you ever notice anything strange about that person? Well, now that you mention it, suddenly they see it all. But I think if we're going to understand why it is that the disciples don't see and don't understand, It's helpful to understand what they hoped to see and what they wanted to understand. Jesus carried out his teachings in the presence of two different societies. A society based on Rome and a society based on Jerusalem. And in Rome... How was it that they assigned prestige and respect and honor? Well, first of all, just notice that this empire is named after a single city, the city of Rome. How did one city come to dominate the majority of the known world? Through military might, through their armies, And so in Rome, this highly militaristic society, the quickest way to honor and glory was not through learning, not through politics, but through the battlefield. Military might was what counted. Military might is what preserved the kingdom. Military might is what brought honor and glory. But what about Jerusalem? In Jerusalem, how was honor and glory and respect given? Surprisingly, in Jerusalem, they did not have much of a tradition of lionizing their military commanders. Even David, their greatest king and commander under 
under who the, uh, the kingdom grew the most, the accounts of his military victories are presented in only the most casual and dry manner. He is lionized not for his military victories, but because he was of the same heart as God. He is lifted up because God loved him. In Jerusalem, honor was given to scholarship and to blood lineage. If you could show that you were descended from the priests, especially from the high priests. Honor and glory were given to those who were descended from those who served in the temple and those who could interpret and um, uh, exposit the law. And now here comes this Jesus and manages somehow to tick off everybody, both in Rome and in Jerusalem. They were waiting in Jerusalem for a Messiah, someone who was going to come and, and, and despite uh, kind of popular understanding, they weren't looking for someone who's going to come and lead them into new military victories. They were looking for someone who's going to restore the people of God. And what did that restoration look like? It looked like someone who was going to come and restore justice, someone who's going to come and restore righteousness, someone who's going to come and restore the people to a right relationship with God and lead them to keep the law. And for this reason, they thought that when the Messiah came, he would chasten those who worked against these things and support those who did these things. That's why when, the, uh, when Jesus was turned away by the Samaritans, they wouldn't let him stop in their village. That's why the disciples wanted him to burn the place up. Because they weren't following the law. They wanted the Messiah to come and, in the words of Malachi, purify the sons of Levi. But Jesus showed an annoying tendency to not purify anything. I mean, here was this people who were waiting for the Messiah to come and dispense righteousness, and Jesus goes around letting people off forgiving a woman caught in adultery, reintegrating people back into community who had been driven out. They were looking for someone who was going to execute justice, and yet here comes this Jesus who ends up forgiving people instead. They were looking for someone who was going to purify Israel, and Jesus comes along and touches the sick, the dying, all sorts of things that made someone unclean. 
He spends time with a woman suffering from a hemorrhage when blood made one unclean. He raises up the daughter of Jairus and raises up Lazarus when corpses made one unclean. And Rome, the only thing that impressed them was military might, such that when Jesus is brought before Herod and Pilate, what do they do? They ask him, do something powerful. Show me what you got. Where are all those armies that are going to support you? And when Jesus can produce none of it or refuses to produce any of it, they dismiss him. And it's telling that Jesus ends up being condemned as a disappointment both to Rome and to Jerusalem. To Rome for his total inability to show any form of power such that he is condemned not as a threat but as a joke with a sign put over his head that says this is the king of the Jews. And in Jerusalem, he is condemned for being a disappointment, for failing to do any of the things that the Messiah was supposed to do to restore Israel and to restore the law. And yet this is the one who is presented before us today as the one who is going to rule over heaven and earth, as the one who ultimately is our king. What does that good thief see in Jesus? By the way, those thieves were, by tradition, given names. The, the bad thief was named, I think, Justice, which meant something like one who complains. And the good thief was named Dismas, which I've forgotten what it means, but it probably means something like wonderful guy or something like that. You know, the names are given as a reflection of, of the role they play in Scripture. What does Dismas see in this guy that at the moment of his death, he says, Jesus, remember me in your kingdom? Well, think of it. What does he see? He sees someone who looks just like him. He sees another mortal human being who is broken and bleeding and defeated by life, despised by those around him, and yet somehow in what Jesus has said and done, Dismas dares to hope that this one might indeed be his king, and that there might be a place for him in his kingdom. Jeremiah compares this future ruler to a good shepherd. And the shepherd is called good because the shepherd is the one who will unify the flock, who will bring the sheep back, who will find all those scattered ones and return them to the fold. But then the prophets go on 
oftentimes to describe how that is going to take place. And they speak in terms of what we call the great reversal. The last will be first and the first will be last. They speak about it in terms of justice, of vindication for those who have been downtrodden and a reckoning for those who have trodden them underfoot. We receive it in such picturesque uh, ways as the talking, talking of the sheep and the goats in which one side goes off to eternal glory and the other side goes off to eternal punishment. But the only problem with these kinds of images is that they don't unite the flock. Indeed, if we're going to talk about a great reversal, all that is is rearranging the furniture. All that is is changing the labels. Okay, sheep, goats, switch sides. But you still end up with a divided flock. You still end up with the scattered sheep. But Jesus has a larger vision than that of the kingdom of God. Jesus comes not to dispense justice, not to demand righteousness, but he comes with the sole purpose of gathering the flock. And if that's going to happen, the only way to make it happen is to eliminate the divisions between them. Whereas the Romans divided the world into strong and weak, and the Jews divided the world into pure and impure, Jesus refuses to, div to divide the world and instead simply divides the world between himself and everyone else. He lets the full weight of justice come down on himself, the full demands of righteousness to settle on himself, and he carries those to the cross so that in comparison, everyone else looks good and everyone else is good. Jesus eliminates any criteria by which to separate or divide or judge the flock in order that they all might be brought together into one fold. And that's what Dismas sees. That's what the good thief sees in Jesus. He sees a kingdom that not only might have room for him, but might even have room for that stinker being crucified next to him. Where there's no longer distinction between good and bad. Good thieves and bad thieves. But just sheep. Sheep who need a shepherd and sheep who need a home. This is the one that gets lifted up for us today as the picture of our king, of our ruler, of, our, of the final end of what things are coming to. Here at the culmination of the church year, we get the cross to look at and the one who is hanging on it there. And in that image, we get the promise that there is a place for us in this kingdom. And with this knowledge, 
we prepare to enter into Advent, to once more hear the echo of the prophets as they, they begin to talk about the coming of a Messiah, the coming of a promised one. And maybe, maybe this time around, we won't be quite so blind. Maybe we'll understand a little bit better what it is that Jesus is doing, what he's saying, what he is revealing. Maybe not, but there'll still be a place for us in that kingdom. Amen.